Religion is stories and music enacted in ritual. Our ancestors gathered around campfires. There would be drumming and dancing and chanting or singing, and there would be storytelling. The stories helped them make sense of themselves. The stories told the people's history. They would tell of how the world came to be and how the plants and animals came to be and how they themselves, the people, came to be. They didn't know how the world and life came to be, so they guessed, using imagination to fashion a tale that seemed to them to have some credibility to make sense of their experience. And we do the same thing today. Long ago, people attended to the stories of the wise ones in long cloaks called shamans. Today, we attend to the stories of wise ones in white lab coats called astrophysicists. Our story today is that there was a singularity 14 billion years ago that expanded into the universe as we know it. Our story today is continually revised by the results of experiments that we designed for the purpose of learning things that would compel us to revise our story. The astrophysicist story has a lot more math in it than the shaman's story of old. But our story, like the ones our first storytelling ancestors told, has at its heart mystery. We don't know what made the singularity happen. And our early ancestors didn't know what force had brought forth the soil and mountains and rivers, sun, moon, stars, plants, animals, and themselves. It all began in mystery. The old stories and the new story alike begin in mystery and then it unfolds. When the unfolding involves something that didn't seem to fit what people could do or what animals or plants could do, what the earth or sky or wind or fire or water could do, the storyteller brought in another character with an agency that could do what otherwise seemed undoable. We might translate the name of that character as spirit or great spirit. It was something mysterious, and there were a lot of very different stories about it. But what the stories had in common was the great and mysterious agent knew things and wanted things. It had knowledge and desires and intentions. How else could mountains or people come to be except through the intention of some creative force? It turns out there is an answer to that question, but it's an answer with a lot of it. The stories and the music and the dance were done way or with ritual or with ritual there were ways maybe that our answers influence or knowledge there were ways connected to this mystery powers and intent it helped them with the mystery they couldn't control or influence and we continue today to gather music a little and to tell stories about where we come from, help us know who we are. Different religions have different stories, different rituals, different moral codes, and different music. Aren't so much different, all headed up. They aren't so much different paths headed up the same mountain as different paths headed up different mountains. But they are all religions, which means they have stories, music, and ritual to convey a sense of 
who we are, what is our place in the family of things, what is ours to do, and what we are here to try to be. Who are we? Where do we come from? And why do we share in practices of, at this time of year, thanksgiving? Therefore, we will today retell the ritual story of thanksgiving. It is that time of year, so let that story be today retold. But we Unitarians are not only a storytelling people, as all people are. We are also a story-revising people, continually updating our story in light of new evidence, new understandings, and new sensibilities. Our openness to change and new evidence, our readiness to revise, is a distinguishing characteristic of our liberal faith. So when we retell again the Thanksgiving story, we will be considering amendments as we go. I call this storytelling session to order. Storyteller, you may proceed. Our story. The Pilgrims were not the first people to land on the shores of New England. The area was first discovered in 1524 by Giovanna de Verzano, who explored the Atlantic coast from Florida to New Brunswick. The chair recognizes the delegate from Norwalk. Please come to the microphone. Next chair, I move to amend. Giovanni di Veranzano did not discover New England. There were people already there. Say instead, Verrazano was the first European to explore the Atlantic coast of what is now called North America. Those in favor of incorporating the amendment, please raise your order of service. <laughs> the amendment is incorporated. Let's back up further then and say who did discover this land. This region we call North America was discovered by peoples who came over the Bering Bland Bridge about 16,000 years ago. They split into branches and spread across the continent. These were the discoverers of our land. The chair recognizes the delegate from the south side. Mixed chairman. <laughs> Move to amend. These people did not discover this region either. There were animals already here, and I might mention in particular the Carolina parakeet, extinct in 1918. I'd nominate them as discoverers of our region. Perhaps we should just remove the word discover altogether. Oh yes, that's the amendment I propose. All in favor of striking the word discover, raise your order of service. Amendment is incorporated. As they split into branches and spread across the continent, one of the branches, about 14 or 15,000 years ago, became the first humans to inhabit the area we call Massachusetts. And then, in 1524, Giovanni de Verrazano explored that area. And John Cabot and Jacques Cartier also charted in the vicinity. In 1609, Henry Hudson made his way up what we call the Hudson River. These explorers sometimes captured and enslaved natives, and they brought diseases. 
Europeans had developed immunity to these diseases, but the natives had not. The Wampanoag, for instance, in 1600, numbered 50,000 to 100,000, occupying 69 villages scattered throughout the region that is now southeastern Massachusetts and eastern Rhode Island. The plague from Europe killed up to two-thirds of them. Many were also captured and sold as slaves. In 1614, a, a Wampanoag boy named Tisquantum was abducted from his village, Pawtuxet, Tisquantum was sold as a slave in Spain, then escaped to England. After several years, Tisquantum was able to get back to Turtle Island, what we call North America. When he returned to his village, he discovered there were no other surviving Pawtuxet. The rest were either killed in battle or died of disease brought from Europe. And then, in 1620, the Mayflower landed at Plymouth Rock, bringing 102 pilgrims. The chair recognizes the delegate from Clive. I'll be ready in a moment. Next chair, point of factual clarification. Did these people call themselves pilgrims? Fact checker. They did not. Not until the 20th century did Pilgrim come to refer to the people who came over on the Mayflower. They called themselves saints. Well, it's disrespectful to call, to call them something they didn't call themselves. I move we call them saints. The chair recognizes the delegate from Beaverdale. Mixed chair, I oppose this amendment. It may be disrespectful to call them pilgrims, but it's disrespectful to us to call them saints because we're pretty sure they weren't. Uh, fact checker, was there another name? They were Puritans. Will the delegates accept an amendment to amend to call them Puritans? I will. The amendment is to call the people on the Mayflower Puritans. All in favor, raise your order of service. The amendment is incorporated. These Puritans settled in an area that was once Pawtuxet, the Wampanoag village, abandoned because of the plague. The English did not see any Wampanoag that first winter at all. They only caught a rare glimpse of a fleeting shadow of the land's inhabitants until March 1621, when Samoset, a Monhegan from Maine, came to the village. The next day, Samoset returned with Tisquantum. Tisquantum had learned English during his abduction, so he could talk to the settlers and serve as translator. Tisquantum showed them how to plant corn, fish, and gather berries and nuts. The crop seeds the colonists had brought with them failed, so without the help of Tisquantum, also called Squanto, there probably wouldn't have been a harvest to celebrate that fall. The chair recognizes the delegate from Polk City. Mixed chair, I move to include what the Puritans wore. Which was? I don't know. Beats me. I was wanting to find out. A fact checker. The 
Puritan colonists did not wear black, large hats with buckles on them, nor buckled shoes. The 19th century artists who painted them that way did so because they associated black clothing and buckles with being old-fashioned. Actually, their attire was bright and cheerful. I move to include that information in the record. All in favor, raise your order of service. The information is incorporated. Pick up from there. The harvest celebration of 1621 was not a solemn religious observance. It was a three-day festival that included drinking, gambling, athletic games, and even target shooting with English muskets, a not-so-subtle way to warn the indigenous peoples that these colonists could shoot them. The Wampanoag chief, Massasoit, and 90 warriors made their way to the settlement in response to the sounds of gunfire. They thought the colonists were under attack, so they came prepared for battle to help defend the colonists. The Wampanoag were probably not invited, and the settlers were probably rather nervous having them around. The chair recognizes the delegate from West Des Moines. We've heard what the Puritans wore. What did the Wampanoag wear? Uh, they were not wearing what is often pictured, woven blankets on their shoulders, large feathered headdresses. They wore breechcloth with leggings and perhaps one or two feathers in their hair in the back. How long did the Wampanoag stay? They stayed for three days, during the course of which they contributed a large portion, perhaps most, of the food. Was the 1621 harvest celebration in November? November would have been much too late. It was sometime between late September and the middle of October. So the first Thanksgiving then was in September or October? The colonists celebrating in 1621 did not call their event Thanksgiving. For them, Thanksgiving was a day of fasting, and this was a feast, the opposite of a Puritan Thanksgiving observance. Calling any event involving white settlers in North America the first Thanksgiving overlooks the fact that for thousands of years before Europeans arrived, indigenous people throughout Turtle Island, North America, celebrated seasons of Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is a very ancient concept to the First Nations of this continent. The 1621 celebration was a one-off that was not repeated and in any case wasn't thought of as a Thanksgiving. Hmm. Last question and I promise to sit down. What is the source of the misinformation we have about the 1621 harvest celebration? Uh, back to Checker. Well, let me tell you. Everything we know about that 1621 feast came from a description in one letter by colonist Edward Winslow. That letter was lost for 200 years. After it was rediscovered, a Boston publisher, Alexander Young, in 1841 printed up the brief account of the feast. Young dubbed the episode, The First Thanksgiving. White Americans, craving a romanticized story of their past, latched onto it. And that's the story of how we got the story. Thank you. Storyteller, please resume. The first European-recognized Thanksgiving came in 1637, when Governor Winthrop of the Massachusetts Bay Colony proclaimed a day of Thanksgiving. 
That proclamation focused on giving thanks for the return of the colony's men who had traveled to what is now Mystic Connecticut, where they had gone to join in battle. The thanks that was foremost in Winthrop's proclamation was thanks for their great victory. The roots of the American Thanksgiving holiday are a celebration of a massacre of hundreds of native people, and it grew into a general celebration of genocide. For example, a proclamation of Thanksgiving in 1676, thanks God that the heathen natives had been almost entirely wiped out in Massachusetts and nearby. Thanksgiving proclamations a century later continue to be connected with war. In the midst of the Revolutionary War, the Continental Congress issued Thanksgiving proclamations each year from 1777 to 1784. Thus was the way paved for Abraham Lincoln in the midst of the Civil War to make Thanksgiving a U.S. national holiday. Lincoln set the U.S. national holiday of Thanksgiving as the last Thursday of November. The chair recognizes the delegate from Johnston. Next chair, I move to include how the holiday moved from the last Thursday of November to the fourth Thursday of November. All right. Would the assembly like to hear how the holiday moved from the last Thursday to the fourth Thursday? All in favor, please raise your order of service. Very good. All opposed? The motion carries. Okay, it's like this. Five times out of seven, the fourth Thursday in November is the last Thursday. The other two times, like this year, November has five Thursdays, and then the fourth one is not the last one. The holiday moved from the last Thursday to the fourth Thursday in 1941. Franklin Roosevelt made the change because November 1941 also, like this year, had five Thursdays. And by moving the holiday up one week, he gave merchants a longer Christmas shopping season every year with five Thursdays in November. The chair recognizes the delegate from Waterbury. Next chair. I move the following resolution. Resolved that those present at this worship service of First Unitarian Church of Des Moines give thanks for all the good in our lives and all the blessings we enjoy. That we remember also the pain and loss of the indigenous people. And that our list of gratitudes include thanks that we have the capacity to face the truths of the past, to learn from them, to love others better, and love the rich diversity of humanity and of life. The motion is resolved that those present at this worship service of First Unitarian Church of Des Moines give thanks for all of the good in our lives and all the blessings we enjoy. That we remember also the pain and the loss of indigenous people. And our list of gratitudes include thanks that we have the capacity to face the truths of the past, to learn from them, to love others better, and love the rich diversity of humanity and of life. 
Motions of this type require a second. Is there a second? We have a second. All in favor of the motion, raise your order of service. All opposed? The motion carries. <laughs> Seeing no one else at the microphone and there being no further business at this assembly, this storytelling session stands adjourned until it's time to review our Christmas story. <laughs> Sometimes you feel happy, sometimes you feel sad, and those are opposite feelings, and life brings them both, though usually not at the same time. Usually being happy means not being sad, and being sad means not being happy. How about these two, being grateful and remembering suffering? These are not even opposites at all. They are the natural expressions, the natural extensions of each other. There is much to be grateful for. Air. Take a breath and be thankful for air. Thank you, air. And we have trees and sunshine to be grateful for and the beauty of this world. Cardinals and nuthatches and chipmunks. Thank you, trees. Thank you, sunshine. Thank you, cardinals, nuthatches, chipmunks. Gratitude chases out loneliness. You can't be lonely when you're feeling thankful because as soon as you say thank you, you have company, companions, friends, the air, the trees, the birdies, and the wee beasties, your company. And compassion also chases out loneliness. Caring about other people, caring about whether they suffer and are treated unfairly chases out loneliness. Compassion brings other people into our lives, even if only in our imagination. We have company. Thankfulness recognizes the companionship that's all around us. Compassion reaches out to extend our companionship outward. For as the world is our good company, it makes us want to be good company for the world. So gratitude and compassion, thankfulness and remembering suffering and unfairness are not opposites. They naturally go together, for they are both about having company in our life. We are not alone. We have the companionship of everything that we are grateful for and everything we have compassion for. When I was a child, the extended family always had a few unrelated guests gathered around the table for Thanksgiving dinner each year. My mom found a recipe for oyster stew one year early on and liked it so much she made it every year thereafter. So I know it's weird, but in my mind, Thanksgiving is associated with oyster stew as well as with the usual turkey cranberry sauce. So thank you, oysters, and thank you, mom. And we would go around the table and talk about what we were thankful for. I don't remember if it ever came up at the Thanksgiving tables where I was then, but it seemed a common thing around Thanksgiving to talk about being grateful for how well we're doing when others are doing so much worse. And that seems weird to me. I suppose the point is to remind us not to take our blessings for granted. And that's a good point. But the even better point is to be reminded that none of us are free until all of us are free. As long as there are others doing worse, then we're doing worse. As long as any being isn't treated fairly, none of us 
has the blessings of living in a world where everyone is treated fairly. We have the great good fortune to be able to care. The greatest blessings is the greatest blessing is to have the capacity for compassion. As Isabel Call said in the invocation that Eliot read, we celebrate Thanksgiving because gratitude is essential to human life. But grief is essential for healing our history of violence. It's really hard to be thankful and sorrowful at the same time, but this is life. Sometimes joy and sorrow come together. Actually, I would say, if you're paying attention, joy and sorrow always come together. When we seem to be having only joy or only sorrow, it's because we're not paying attention to the other. But it's always there. Joy and sorrow manifest as gratitude and compassion. Gratitude and compassion are dishes best served together. May you find them both amply supplied at your Thanksgiving table. Amen.